This is a busy time of year for Tamara Moore. More, M-O-R-E, less is more. Tamara is the CEO of the Association for Immediate Help for Holocaust Survivors. We are an organization that was established nine years ago in Israel, helping Holocaust survivors for morning to morning, uh, weekends, uh, holidays, every hour, every day of the year. And Tamara isn't just saying that. When I came to meet her at the association's headquarters in Ramat Gan, it was almost midnight. But she was in the middle of work. And this, I quickly figured out, was just a normal day at the office. Well, it's about 24 hours a day, 24-7. The offices aren't quite what you'd expect of an organization that deals with more than 5,000 cases a year. There are no cubicles with filing cabinets or desktops. There's no receptionist or conference room. Instead, basically every inch of free space is crammed with tall piles of canned tuna fish or tomato paste or bags of rice. When I asked her why there were literally hundreds of bottles of grape juice and boxes of matzahs, Tamara explained. We had a huge, huge dinner for 450 Holocaust survivors who are all alone in the world and had no place to celebrate the Passover Eve. It was so uh, difficult a task to do, and we barely slept for a month in order to make it uh, happen for these survivors. And there were many, many tears, uh, but there were tears of joy, mainly. That was last week. But now she's already knee-deep in her next project. Yes. Uh, on top of everything else, a couple of days ago, a uh, few Holocaust survivors approached me and told me secretly that they have cancer, last stages of cancer, and they asked to celebrate their victory over the Nazis uh, in a very special meal. They said it will be their last meal because they are not expecting to leave for long and they ask it to be on this Sunday, which will be the eve of Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel. So I haven't slept for the last few days as well, trying to make this happen, and it's still in the making. It's not uh, final yet. As you can imagine, Tamara looks tired, very tired. But she plows on. There's a palpable sense of emergency in everything she does as if she and the association she heads are running out of time. There are about 40 Holocaust survivors that die each day. 1,200 Holocaust survivors die each month in Israel. And these are the survivors who suffer the most. These are the older survivors who went through the Holocaust in the hardest way. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So we're trying something new here today, a single story episode, a short. And we'll have a bunch of these for you throughout the season. But before we jump into today's really dramatic saga, I want to tell you that we're just about to come to the States for yet another live show tour. This one's called Melting Pot and is produced, as always, together with our amazingly generous friends at the JCC Manhattan. 
It's going to be a great show, with all new amazing stories, gorgeous live music, and stunning visuals. So, folks in Pittsburgh, New York City, Indianapolis, Seattle, and Miami, don't miss it. Check our website or newsletter for more details. So, early next week, Israel will mark Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. There are just about 160,000 Holocaust survivors still living here, according to a study that came out this week. But as Tamara pointed out, they're rapidly vanishing. And that means that the memory of the Holocaust, the stories we tell and hear about the Holocaust, are increasingly shifting from first-hand accounts to ones, like our episode today, of second-generation survivors. Lizzie Doron is an Israeli author. She was born in the early 50s in Tel Aviv. And like many other kids of her generation who grew up with parents who had gone through the camps, Lizzie's childhood was filled with silence. Most of her questions about the family's past were just ignored. So her imagination kicked in. Or at least so she thought. Maya Kosover brings us a severe case of second generation. High above, on a hill, stood a pretty castle, tall and still, and in it lived a family that had been there for eternity. But nobody knows about this dynasty. The only one left to tell is me. Okay, so I'm uh, Lizzie Duron. Once upon a time I was Elizabeth. My mother wanted me to have a Gentile name, that I will have an option to leave the country and not to belong to the Jewish people. My last name was Ruja, after my father, but I never met my father. Lizzie was born in 1953. She was raised in a small working-class neighborhood in South Tel Aviv. I grew up just with my mom as an only child, and I was surrounded by um, neighbors. They all came from there, which means the Holocaust. It was a very warm, cozy, and crazy neighborhood. More than 100 families lived there. Most of them had fled the Nazis. They had known each other from the ghettos, from the woods, from the camps. And now they were together again here in Tel Aviv. So this neighborhood, you can imagine, wasn't quite like other neighborhoods. It had its own rituals and traditions. At night, people would step out into the streets, let loose, and relive their traumatic memories. Every night... I just looked through the window, and it was around 12 o'clock that one of them ran in the streets shouting, I am in Bergen-Belsen, I am in Bergen-Belsen. There was another woman that when she did shower to her son, suddenly she felt that it's a gas chamber, and she pushed him from the bathroom And she ran with him in the streets, and the child was naked. 
So there were few neighbors who stood there with towels just to cover the small child. Little Elizabeth would stand by the window, hidden by the curtains, and collect scattered bits of information. These were my bedtime stories. But in her own home, there was nothing but silence. She often tried to ask, to inquire, but her tight-lipped mother, Helena, wouldn't cooperate. I asked her where she came from, and it was just a short answer from the Holocaust. When I asked her, why aren't you celebrating your birthday? And she used to answer, because I'm a dead walking person. When I wanted to know something about my father, she said that anyhow he's far away. And I didn't know whether that meant that he left or died. Alongside her evasive answers, Helena had her own unique rituals. She used to go to the synagogue just uh, during Yom Kippur. She would slip into the Ezrat Gvarim, the men's section, wearing a talit. And then instead of what is in the Jewish tradition to ask God to forgive us for our sin, she stood there and demanded that God will ask her to forgive him. And she mentioned all the names of the family that she lost during the Holocaust, counting 69 names. Once she was done, Helena would notify the other people in shul that now, and only now, could they go back to praying to their God. But not before taking out from her pocket a huge sandwich with shinken and cheese. And when everybody was staring at her, she said, listen, I suffered enough. This is my celebration day. Now I'm free to decide for my own and I never be uh, hungry again. And then she ate the sandwich and left the synagogue. At home, Helena and Elizabeth were surrounded by secrets and question marks. Yet still, throughout her childhood, little Elizabeth had a strange feeling that, that she wasn't alone. That someone was looking at her, following her. She would occasionally see a face peering through her classroom window, peeking in and then immediately disappearing. And one day she was on her way to the center of town with a bunch of friends. We were on the bus and I saw someone that is running behind the bus and looking at me. It was the same face that I saw from time to time at school through the window. Elizabeth told her friends she had a headache and got off the bus. But actually, she went on a manhunt, looking for this boogeyman of hers. She searched for hours checking behind every tree, bush, and building in the neighborhood. But she came up empty-handed. When she finally got home, she didn't mention any of it to her mother. And in general, as she grew up, Elizabeth's relationship with her mom became more and more tense. When she was 18, 
a young soldier fell in love with her. He knocked on the door and of course he came with the gun and with the uniform. Helena stared at the young suitor and asked, How many Arabs did you kill? And she shut the door on his face. And I stood in the middle of the room. I looked at her and I said, But I'm in love. And he is the son of one of the chief generals in the Israeli army. And then she said, that's the reason I don't want him to enter this house. And then I said to myself, okay, this is the time to take a suitcase and to leave. Elizabeth ran away as far as she possibly could, all the way to a kibbutz on the Golan Heights. Her new home represented the proud, militaristic and machoistic Israel her European mother so despised. There, she worked the land and joined the Gar'in Nachal, a group that went into the army together. That's where she got a new, snappier name, Lizzie. Lizzie from Kibbutz Ramot. I was the one who was ready to work in the kitchen and to be with all those soldiers during the nights on the borders. I read just books about Israeli wars and Israeli heroes. I used to go with gun, as if it's my earrings or my necklace. I felt that I'm the Israeli Hannah Semesh. <laughs> Three years later, when the Yom Kippur War broke out, Lizzie's kibbutz fantasy was shattered. Seven of her closest friends were killed on the first day of the war. Shocked? She returned home to her mother. I entered my home after three years that I didn't meet my mom. I opened the door. I ran to my room. I closed the door. She was clever enough not to ask anything. The trauma of losing so many friends led her onto a new path. Once again, searching for a new identity, for new roots. She enrolled in the university and met Danny. They fell in love and it quickly became serious. I called my mom. I asked her to behave well. She promised. And we went to visit her. And as usual, when she opened the door, she looked at him and she had to ask him, what was your job in the army? Danny stood at the door and sheepishly said that he had been a truck driver. And my mother had a wide smile on her face. And she looked at me and she said, I think... You found your husband. I wanted to kill her. When Danny left, Lizzie asked her mom why she was so obsessed with what her boyfriends did in the army. For once, she got an answer. Killing somebody else changed your soul and changed your inner world. And she dreamt that my husband will be a man that didn't kill anyone. And he will be the one who will get from her permission to bring her a grandsons and daughters. A week later, Lizzie and Danny were engaged. They had two kids, a daughter and then a son. Lizzie went on to get a master's degree. Life seemed stable, calm. But in 1990, Helena had a sudden stroke. Lizzie rushed to the hospital. The head of the emergency room started to ask me questions. 
how old is your mother? And then I said, I don't know where she came from. And I said, I don't know. The doctor was surprised. Then he asked what she suffered from. And I said, nightmares. And he said, listen, you look as a serious person. So I have to get the information to know how to treat her. He asked if anyone in her family had died of an illness. And I said, no, no, in my family, everybody died healthy. And then he was very confused and he said, what's that mean and what's the reason of the death of your family? And I said, gas chambers. The doctor asked Lizzie if she knew how her mom got the massive scar across her belly. Lizzie repeated what she had always been told, that it was from an appendicitis her mom had had in Auschwitz. And he looked at me and he said, listen, Lizzie, are you saying in Auschwitz they did an appendix operation? Do you think about another alternative? And I said, such is. And then he looked at me and asked, do you have any brothers, sisters? The doctor knew the scar was from a C-section. But Lizzie told him she was an only child and that she had been born a natural birth. He realized that she really didn't know anything about her mom's past. He called the psychiatrist into the room. And he whispered to the other doctor, listen, we have a severe case of second generation. And then I looked and I said, I'm not a severe case of anything and I'm not second generation. I was born in Israel and I'm an Israeli. After seven long months in the hospital, Helena passed away. A few years later, Dana, Lizzie's daughter, got an assignment from school to create a family tree. She asked a ton of questions about the family. But just like her mom before her, Lizzie didn't have many answers. So Lizzie returned to her childhood neighborhood in South Tel Aviv and talked to some of the old neighbors. She sat down with an elderly woman who had been friendly with her mom. And I wanted her to tell me about my father. And she said, I have in my album a picture in which I see your father is looking at you. It was a Purim celebration and he was beyond the trees. And she showed me the picture. Lizzie recognized that photo. She had seen it many times before. In it, her giggly five-year-old self is standing in front of a tall hedge. She's smiling a toothy smile, completely oblivious to the presence of a middle-aged man hiding behind the hedge, looking at her. She had never noticed that guy beforehand. And now she realized that that man was her father, the father she had never met. Because his face was hidden by the leaves, I never noticed it. When I did, 
I just knew that this was the man I had seen following me, looking into our classroom and running after that bus. At the age of nearly 50, Lizzie finally started putting together the pieces of the mysterious puzzle which was her father. He had survived the camps and arrived in Israel alone, battling tuberculosis. Back then, Helena was a nurse on a kibbutz, in charge of giving all the newcomers their medical examinations. And one day, this sick man came and told her that his last wish was to die as a kibbutz member. So my mom kept his secret. When the kibbutz found out he was sick, they asked him to leave, at once. This reminded Helena of other selections she had witnessed, and she couldn't remain silent. She was not going to let this man die alone. So they both left the kibbutz and moved in together in Tel Aviv. Two years later, shortly after Helena became pregnant, his tuberculosis took a turn for the worse. He moved into a sanitarium, and the doctors said it was a matter of months. But he ended up living for eight more years. On better days, when he had enough strength to make it into Tel Aviv, he would watch his little girl from afar, like an invisible ghost, hiding behind hedges, bushes, or closed windows. Lizzie later found out that everyone in the neighborhood knew about him. Everyone but me. Dana's family tree project turned into a book, Lizzie's first. It was especially popular in Germany, and her life today is divided between Tel Aviv and Berlin. I carry the pain of both lands, she once told me. The final chapter of this saga came a few years ago, when a friend of Lizzie's, a German non-Jewish journalist, handed her a large manila envelope. Inside, she quickly discovered were the answers to all those questions her mother had been silent about her entire life. After my mom survived Auschwitz, she was sent to a work camp. She nearly died there, and there was a doctor, a Nazi, who felt compassion for her and saved her. After the war, this doctor was sentenced to death, and my mom traveled to Poland, took the witness stand and said, you know, the Jews say, Whoever saved a single life, it's like he saved the entire world. So I ask you to spare this man because he saved me. The Nazi wasn't ultimately executed. Helena had saved his life. And during her testimony, which Lizzie was now reading, Helena unfolded her entire story. She said, my name is Elena Hochdorf. I came from Pshevos. I was in Plashov, in Auschwitz, in Skarzetsky Kamiena, in Buchenwald. I lost my husband in the war. I had two sons, but I don't know what happened to them. My mom had always said I was her only daughter. Maya Kosover. The original music for this story 
including the song playing right now, was composed and performed by the wonderfully talented Hazelnuts, Shirazi Karmel, Ifat Ziv, and Rani Wagner. You can listen to all our previous episodes, including the season opener we just released two days ago, on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes or any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you don't mind, go into iTunes and give us a rating or leave a comment. Apparently that really helps expand the Israel Story family. And you knew it was coming. We are still looking for a sponsor. And that could be you. So if you want to support our show and reach a lot of people who are all interested and engaged with Israel, email us at sponsor at prx.org. Before we sign off, I want to remind you, once again, about our exciting news. After getting small tastes of Israel on our show for the last two seasons, we now want to offer you a giant main course. We're organizing our first ever Israel Story trip to Israel. On this trip, you'll meet some of the extraordinary people who've told their stories on our episodes. Folks like Yiska, the former Chabad rabbi who now lives as a fully transitioned middle-aged woman in Jerusalem. We'll travel all over the country, hearing tales and hopefully gathering new Israel stories. I'll be there for parts of the trip, and so will many of the other Israel Story producers. So mark your calendars this coming November, you can have the ultimate Israel Story experience and help support the show. You can check out the trip's mini-site, israelstory-trip.com, or just email us at trip at israelstory.org for more info. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash israelstory to hear all our previous episodes. And you can find links to the Association for Immediate Help for Holocaust Survivors, who are always looking for help and support, on our site. Our staff includes Maya Kosover, Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, and Rachel Fisher. Zev Levi, Dima Perevoshikov, and Aviva de Kornfeld are our wonderful production interns. Kobi Farhi mixed today's episode. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. So till then, yalla bye. Bye.